Hello and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. In this week's episode, we revisit our large list of philosophical inquiries, continuing from episode 42, with a new set of questions to challenge our minds. If you like these types of episodes, or if you don't, let us know wherever you watch or listen in a review, in the YouTube comments section, our channel's tag is at Pursuit of Infinity, or on Instagram at Pursuit of Infinity Pod. Or you can visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Pursuit of Infinity and get into contact with us there. All of these things and more can be found at PursuitofInfinity.com, which is our newly published home. So head over there and see what we've got. And without further delay, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's discussion. Today we're back with a large series of philosophical questions that we're going to discuss. Uh, last time we left off at number 24, which is, what is time? So now we're on number 25, which is, do acts of kindness have a motive? Joe, what do you think? I think acts of kindness do have a motive. Um... I think it could be a wide range of motives. I mean, some acts of kindness can come from a quote-unquote negative place. If you're trying to, like, manipulate someone, that's one motive. But I think most of the time, if it's a genuine act of kindness, the motive is to make the other person feel good or, you know, just to make them feel loved. Um, I'm trying to think what uh, an act of kindness would be without a motive. I think the only act of kindness that would be without motive would be like an indirect act of kindness. Like if I did something that I was going to do anyway, and it just so happened to affect somebody in the same way as if I was doing it for them out of kindness. But even so, I think every action that a human being makes has a motive. It originates from somewhere. Whether you look at where it originates in the human brain, like chemically, you can you can narrow that down. but it always starts with something, you know, there's only so fast that electrical signals can travel through your body, like to make you do something. So there has to be like an initiative or like an, 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 an initiator of the act. I don't see how there can be any kind of action, whether it be kindness or hatred or anything that doesn't have some kind of a motive. I wonder if the question is, referring to like an egotistical motive or like a self-serving motive um i mean if the question was worded like um are acts of selflessness guided by a motive i would say yes because every act of selflessness is like it originates as a selfish thing because you're getting the reward of feeling good of you know, uh, the endorphin rush and the dopamine rush of like doing something for someone and seeing their response to it, feeling good about yourself for being altruistic. Like there's, there's a lot of selfish aspects of selfless acts, but I mean, that's not technically the question, but I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Right. Right. I've heard that. I've heard the, um, 
idea that there's no such thing as a selfless act. Like every act is selfish in the way you just described. Um, even if you think you're being selfless and it's purely like a selfless act, you're still receiving like a positive feedback. For some reason, there will always be something that comes back to you. But I don't think it's necessarily true that there's no such thing as a selfless act. I think there can be selfless acts, but it requires like a, an enlightened state of consciousness. It has to be, you have to be, you know, highly conscious to the point where you are not identifying with the ego and feeling purely selfless. But that's extremely rare. So generally, I do agree with the fact that every act is selfish in a sense, but I think it's possible to act selflessly, but it requires, you know, killing your ego basically, or just identifying with everything and nothing. Well, then if you're going to kill the ego, then who is, or what is performing the act? Like to me, it's, it's both like a little bit of both, like it can be selfless and selfish because like the ego itself is the one that's committing the act, that's doing the thing. And everything that we do, everything that we think we are exists on that layer of consciousness that is our ego. So something can still be selfless as in like if you're going to describe the act itself as selfless from a third person perspective, like if you... If you save somebody from a burning building, you go in there and you risk your life to do it. On the outside, I can look at you and say, man, that was a really selfless thing you did there. That's amazing. But it's still your ego. It's still the person that you are, your personality, who decided to jump into that building and save the person. So to me, it's, it's definitely both. It just depends on what perspective you're looking at it from. It's like a, most things, paradox, really. Right. But what I'm saying is if you're that's what I mean when I said like enlightened, like I mean, actually, like if you live your life, which I'm saying may, very few people on this planet do. But if you're living in a constant non-dual state and you don't identify yourself with the ego, with yourself, if you are constantly reality itself, if you are just existence, living in the non-dual, basically just being the unity itself that's i think how you achieve selflessness basically but you know speaking from generally like how we behave and how 99.9999 people behave i think i agree with everything you just said i think pretty much all of it is selfless or both or all of it's selfish excuse me or both but for that tiny tiny percentage of people who have like mastered this journey basically and live in a pure state of non-duality, that's, I think, the only way you could achieve selfless acts in a true sense. The people that come to mind are like the Dalai Lama or uh, Ram Dass's guru, Neem Karoldi Baba. It seems that those type of people, like if you look at what they're doing in their life, they're helping others along the path. They're, they're helping others to, to awaken. Um, and they're doing it in a selfless way because they're not identifying with themselves or their ego. Um, Neem Karoli Baba was famous for 
like performing miracles and then saying like that wasn't me like i didn't do that it wasn't it was like god's will god did it i don't i don't have any special powers so yeah i guess you'd have to look to the saints of our world you know the people who have been proven to be um like actual gurus yeah and interestingly enough it's like all the you named like a couple people there um but pretty much all the people that are in that state let's say most of them the high really high percentage of them will never know who they are will never know their name or they'll never be exposed in a large scale because they have no desire to mostly um but there's the you know the very few that we've been blessed with that we get to you know hear them speak or you know read their books this and that i think we got a little bit off the question maybe but yeah um, maybe a bit maybe a bit <laughs> but i think that that uh that probably sums it up unless you have something else to say about that no i think i'm good with that one okay all right number 26 is is mind or matter more real in my opinion mind is more real because from the perspective that i'm standing from i believe that mind creates matter more than matter creates mind this is really just what do you feel is fundamental the wetware of your brain or the broadcast of consciousness what creates what what's more fundamental than the other i could see a perfectly sound argument for matter being more fundamental and being more real because people would just look to the evidence of the brain creating consciousness consciousness and generating it as their evidence for that and that's cool but in my view it's definitely mind yeah i think um you know when you talk about what's real or what's more real that's kind of weird something's real or it isn't i guess but i think you put it well if they're talking about more real it, it seems like what they're saying is like what is fundamental and whenever i see like a, a question like this that's like mind or matter or good or bad anything like that when it's a, a duality what i try to do like an exercise in my mind is attempt to even just intellectually dissect that duality and transcend it and that's what i think with mind and matter we talk about them like they're opposites or uh they're two separate things i think that the duality of mind and matter collapses into mind because essentially like you said if if mind is fundamental then matter is mind this thing that you know mind creates matter as you said so there's no actual difference between mind and matter all the matter is mind so it would the duality would collapse into a uh, capital m mind but as far as i get kind of what the question's going at i would have to say mind as well I'd like to maybe phrase it as like to think of it on a deeper level um, as instead of mind and matter, like formlessness being mind and then form being matter, because you can see the correlation between the two and the interdependence that they each have on one another when you think about form and formlessness, because with again, you know, without, without form, we say this a lot, you don't have formlessness and Without formlessness, you don't have form because they provide context for each other. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be to, unless if it's not, then it just collapses into all just pure unity. Yeah, and then you, you have nothing because the only way we can identify the unity 
is by collapsing it into a duality for like descriptive purposes, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's just like this this state of consciousness. That's why the everything is nothing. I, I you just said basically that it, it without the comparison it's nothing. But the two of them together are everything. So they're the same thing when they collapse into nothing or everything. Cuz everything and nothing are the same thing and unless it's a a true unless you break one of those two concepts down into a duality, then you have the two. Right, and that's what I was saying. Like, I, with any duality you choose, they can be collapsed into one because essentially at the core of reality is one, you know. The unity is, is like the most foundational consciousness of reality. So that's whenever I see any kind of, any duality like this or that, and they're supposed to be opposites on the yin and yang, I try to, figure out how they're actually the same thing intellectually it's just like a fun exercise if you envision the yin and the yang you know you see the the eye of each fish is the color of the opposite and that's because they both have to have a piece of one another and they you know they intermingle they they, they coexist together creating that thing that we feel as a unity right and that's the interesting like the the yin and yang most people see that as a symbol of duality, which it is. But it's such a cool symbol because it's also the whole thing together is a symbol of non-duality for the reason you just mentioned. Because even though, you know, the eye of the fish is the color of the opposing fish. So it, the, the whole symbol itself is non-duality. It's unity. But a lot of people look at it and just see the, uh, the, du the dual aspect of it. 27. Is love simply physical desire or something more? Love is not physical desire. It can be in, in like a very basic human sense of love. Um, but love is, is definitely something more. It's, it's basically, I th didn't we talk about this? We did. We talked okay. about this in depth, I think. We can well, just, yeah, we can just run through it a little bit. Um, Love is, is God, basically. Love is everything. It sounds like one of those like kind of hippie sayings, but the point is that the most foundational, fundamental driving force of existence, of consciousness, is love, which is everything. And we talked about a little bit, you can kind of, you can, you can't, not kind of, you can boil everything down to love. Even negative actions come from a place of love. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about it a little bit. Yeah, well, what strikes me initially about the question itself is that when you have a question that puts it, is love simply, then you can pretty much guarantee that, no, it's not going to just be simply one thing. Physical attraction, physical romantic love is one aspect of love. It's like a doorway to love. but. To say that the doorway is the thing, it's like the map is not the territory. I'm sure you've heard that quote before. Um, the, the parts don't necessarily describe the entirety of the thing, especially something like love. I mean, we can't really pin down a definition of love without going on and on and on for like an essay's worth uh, of words here. Like I, for me to describe what love is, it would just, it would be very difficult. So to say it's simply a 
physical attraction, that's just part of it. That's just one of the many doorways that you can take uh, to get yourself into the state of love. Yeah, love is um, the transcendence of all dualities. It's it's unity. Um, that's why I said, like you said, you could speak on it forever. You never really get it fully down. Uh, that's why I said the word God, because it's the same same thing, same force, and you can't really describe it in its entirety with language in a human state of consciousness, just in this standard state. But it's something that is, and it's all there is. So, you know, in our current state, we don't always recognize things as love because we're conditioned to think as love as what it describes, like simply a desire or attraction. Um, but underneath it all, and I think this is why psychedelics are fantastic, because you can, it's like a, a, a key to access those states. And you can feel that universal love, that driving force, that foundational love that basically creates everything and, you know, creates your whole experience that, you, you know, that you live. It, it binds everything. It's like the substance to which everything is interconnected. And it's like the it's the source of all, of all of it. It's like if every, if things if everything is interconnected and we all meet at one coordinate, that's the coordinate. It's love. It's it's the foundational connection of everything. Yeah, that's why. Like to a materialist, it sounds crazy, but I I think a pretty good way to say it to like a a standard materialist would just be like the um the fundamental force that drives the universe that kind of fits the paradigm a little bit and is one simple sentence that breaks it down a little bit kind of says what you just said all right 28 where do thoughts come from i love this one there's a school of thought that thoughts come from something that's external that you're sort of tapping into um, and some schools of thought even give it a personality. They give it almost a form. Or they give it its own intelligence, its own form of communication, where like if you can sit quietly, you can tap into it and it can feed you ideas. This is prominent in like Stephen Pressfield's work. He will call, like, if you're creating some sort of an art form, um, say you're a writer and you have writer's block, then he calls that resistance. And the key to overcoming resistance is connecting yourself to what he calls the muse, which is like this external intelligence that is the source of all ideas, that when you quiet yourself enough, you can hear it, you can communicate with it. And it does sort of present itself as um, like an intelligence or another person that you're talking to. Uh, the Greeks have an idea that's similar to this, which they call the logos, which is like uh, the ever-informing intelligence of God or the external transcendence. Uh, they also call it the daemon, which is like your personal like call to action, your personal call for purpose and meaning. And if you follow the daemon, which is like this uh, this guiding force of positivity and love and progress, uh, you're going to actualize into the version of yourself that you're meant to be or something like that. So I think all of this uh, encapsulates this idea of an external force 
that's giving you the ideas that you can sort of tap into. Um, but again, it's like this yin and the yang thing. It's not as if this external force is separate from, from us or separate from ourselves, because when we start to identify with our egos and with our separateness, we, we find ourselves farther and farther away from this thing. So it's a weird paradox in that way too. Yeah. I mean, the, the standard argument I think for most people would be that thoughts come from the brain. That's, you know, the materialist view. I agree with everything you just said too. the, um, but as you said, you said externally, and at the same time, it, it there's nothing external to you. It's all you. You know, you're not separate from the universe. You are the universe. So it it's both external and internal. I think it just helps to think about it as something external from yourself. So that again, it's like when you're trying to describe a unity, you break it into a duality just to get a handle on what it is and how to think about it. Right, because basically what you are saying is that it's it's not the ego. It's something other than the ego. It's not, you know, standardly you'd think that me, the ego, came up with the thoughts. That um, it came from my brain and it just happened because of me, the ego. But it comes from the universe or the muse, whatever you want to call it. Um, the Akashic Records, I hear that too. That's kind of like New Age. Um, but yeah, I, th I find that always fascinating to think about uh, where thoughts come from. Do thoughts come from the future? <laughs> you know? That's an interesting aspect of it, potentially. It's fun to think about. Um, but yeah, I think the main thing is that thoughts come from something that isn't the ego. That's for sure. It's interesting, though, like when you're in your head and when you're thinking about thoughts and when you're thinking too much on an intellectual level, your default mode network in your brain is like firing on all cylinders. You know, it's at a higher level of functioning. And then when you quiet that default mode network, whether it be with breath work, meditation, psychedelics, the connections in your brain or the different parts of your brain communicate with one another and form connections where the default mode network would filter them out. So it's like the thoughts themselves can be associated with the ego because you're thinking too much about it. But then when you think about where the thoughts come from and the opportunity to grant yourself higher access to new thoughts, and new insights, it seems that lowering the activity of the default mode network more readily makes you available for them, which is kind of a weird thing to think about. Yeah, it's counterintuitive. Like if you, because it seems like when you are trying really hard to intellectually think about something and you're trying to get a result, you're really thinking what you're doing, like when you're, you're overactive in thinking, it's like you're just trying to remember things and piece them together. So you're just thinking backwards and thinking of things you already thought and trying to piece it into a new thought. But then when you quiet the mind, that's when, interestingly enough, when you stop thinking about the thing, that's when the insight comes, when the thought is just allowed to happen, when the thought just enters the vessel rather than trying to be created, you know, inside the vessel. Yeah, it's that idea of like if you're working on a tough problem, 
sometimes you have to just work on it for a little bit, get it in your brain, have it cemented there as an idea in the back of your mind as a planted seed, and then you you leave the situation. You go, you do something else. You do something for fun, or you work on a different project, or you just uh, you sort of put that on the back burner. And then a lot of times you'll have an insight related to that project or that thought pattern um, that will then like guide you toward figuring it out or solving the issue. And I think that's the same idea. It's like you let your, yourself relax into absorbing the thoughts from, you know, wherever, wherever you get them. Yeah. A lot of, um, you know, the most important insights that like are modern scientists and, you know, all these discoveries people have had, they'll, a lot of them will say the same thing that doesn't happen when they're sitting there crunching the numbers or just like really pushing into their work that they, it usually happens kind of as you're describing is that, you know, you work all day at it, you work all day at it. And then you step away for a few minutes or you step away for a few hours and then it comes to you. And I think that's, that's key about having any type of insight is stepping away from the problem and allowing it to happen. Just allowing the thought instead of forcing the thought. Cause you know, where do thoughts come from? It's better said, where do new thoughts come from? Because old thoughts come from, I would say memories, you know, you just patching memories together, but the new thought that's interesting because it's something that you hadn't thought before. So it's something brand new created, which comes from something similar to like the muse or just not the ego. It's, you know, the universe, it's God. You can call it whatever you'd like, but um, it's just not happening as simply as in your brain, um, you know, through thinking hard about something. I can't remember if I read this or if I heard it, but I heard or read somebody say like, why do you think the concept of shower thoughts are a thing? Because when you take yourself out of any sort of intellectual situation and put yourself in a little box and you're focusing on something that's not the problem. You're washing yourself. You're doing this like normal mundane thing, but it still takes up some brain power to do it. It frees you up to absorb, you know, the external thoughts that, well, I say external, but you know, um, and also we were just discussing insight before we started to record and uh, I was just like describing to you how my most influential insights come into my mind. And it's always right before bed. I'm laying in bed or it's not even right before. It's right before I fall asleep. So I'll be laying in bed in the darkness and my mind will be sort of free of all of the things that I experienced during the day. It's almost like the defrag process has just started to begin and I'm available to absorb these insights and they just, they happen. They fly into my brain and they fly out. I try to remember them and they're gone. I got to start writing them down. That's exactly what I was going to say. It's because we just had talked about that. Um, it's like you hit that hypnagogic state right before you're actually asleep. Your mind is awake, but your body is fully relaxed and you're beyond the, the ego mind at that point. You're not thinking about your day or yourself or anything at all, really. It's when your mind is fully empty and detached from your ego that suddenly the answers come flying into you. But, you know, the, the funny thing about being in that state is because, well, the funny thing about it is that you usually fall asleep 
or pop back up and you, you know, you either fall asleep or you wake up. And either way, then you forget the insight. Because if you wake up, you suddenly suck back to the ego mind and start thinking about, I need to remember that. I need to remember that, meaning the ego. And the, the, those insights weren't for your ego. You know what I mean? So it's like either way, those are hard to uh, hold on to. Like you say, you want to write them down, but it's still going to be hard because you get up and then your mind suddenly goes right back to that like survival ego mode. And you'll be like, I can't put the words to paper. That happens a lot. But yeah, we were just talking about that. And I find that to be the the key time where I have a lot of insights and thoughts, same as you. I've also noticed that um, you mentioned the shower. It's another one that, that is common. When I play music, when I play like my bass, or even I just started learning the uh, piano, when I get into like kind of a flow state, and I'm not really thinking about the music. I'm just kind of playing it. And I got, you know, just purely playing, not thinking about making something new, just flowing. In that state, I'll get um, some creative insights like that I'm not looking for. They just start to happen. Dude, yes, yes, the flow state. The flow state is the most reliable way to get these insights. And when you describe a flow state, a flow state is another way of sort of offlining that default mode network. It seems that any way that you can limit that and quiet that part of your brain where it's able to just sort of like fully communicate with the rest of the parts of the brain that the default mode network sort of filters out, that's where the insights come from. That's where the thoughts and the ideas come. Yeah, I think the more detached you become from your standard state, like, your your standard egocentric state of consciousness like i i think you might have just mentioned this before too but like with meditation and breath work i think i get insights during breath work too and meditation because you know when you get into a really deep state you kind of start to just let go of everything when you can really get into a deep state then you know then thoughts come that you've never had before you start to maybe realize something that you never had in the past so I think the key is basically thoughts come from a detached state of consciousness. Very well said. Number 29, does evil come from within? And if so, why? See, the, the, with the question, that's the thing. I mean, it does come within. Or evil does come from within because you, are, you create evil. Evil doesn't exist independent of your mind. Nothing is inherently evil until you label it as such. So from within yourself, that's where the evil comes from. If you don't perceive something as evil, it ceases to be evil. Evil isn't an absolute property of the universe. Love is. So even that which you presume is evil is actually love fundamentally. So yes, evil comes from within because you're creating it every time you see it. Wouldn't you say, though, in that rationale that it, come, it doesn't come from within because it's a label and labels not being fundamental to the universe would be sort of external from it? Although I do understand what you're, what you're saying, because I, I agree. I, I do think that it comes from within because like evil is ultimately like it's almost like the, 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 the question that we had earlier. It's like everything has a motivation. Everything comes from and originates inside your mind so if you're going to 
perform any act, that act is going to come from within first. It's like, or even the ideas, you know, it comes from an idea, it comes from a thought. Yeah, I mean, I think within or, you know, without, same difference really, but it's easier for me to uh, convey by saying within because, I mean, you think about it in, from the ego perspective, you know, you're, even with your ego mind, that's that's what's creating it. So you think about within, you think that's coming from your ego mind. Um, but yeah, the ego doesn't exist outside of that, so it has to come within. In what way could you say that it doesn't come from within? Like, say you steal a man, the other side of the argument. I think the uh, the best way for the other side of the argument would be kind of to revert what we were just talking about and say that evil comes from the muse. You know, whatever that is, which creates new insights, that thing, quote-unquote, outside of yourself meaning the ego, that you gather new thoughts from, that same thing is what's propelling the evil thought or the evil action. Um, but like I said, you first have to believe that it is evil for it to be evil. But putting that aside, then you could say it comes from outside of you because it comes from that muse. It comes from the thing we were just talking about that gives you insights during a flow state. I think some people would say that evil comes from the outside in the form of your environment, as in like people say, oh, we're a product of our environment. So evil is going to come from an external source that motivates you or influences you to then do something evil. Um, or like if I say like, oh, we in America or you and I, like we're good people, you know, we're not evil people, but people uh, like Putin, he's evil. And the Communist Party in China, they're evil. Like you look externally and you can find what you define as evil outside of yourself. And that's where I think people would go uh, if they were to describe evil coming from the outside. Yeah, no, it makes perfect sense. And I totally agree. But the rebuttal would be what I said, that those things aren't actually evil. You're, you're calling them evil, which creates the evil. So the action is actually love even no matter how twisted the love may be it's still love but the same way you said like oh i say putin is evil well putin doesn't see himself as evil so he's not actually evil he's evil when i create the idea of him being evil in my mind so that's when i say it comes from within and that would be the best way i could answer but also the rebuttal that you gave would be it totally makes sense and i could see you know the product of your environment, the evil being outside of yourself. I think that's a more of a short-sighted version of an answer, though, personally. Like, I align myself with your position a lot more um, because it's always about your perspective. It's the perspective that you currently take. Your perspective can change in an instant because, again, it comes from within. It comes from deep within your subconscious. It comes from you know, your experiences, who you define yourself as, again, that pesky little default mode network. So in my view, all things come from within. Exactly. It's like, have you ever had an experience of um, pointing at something 
and saying it's evil and with all of your being feeling it like that is evil and then you obtain a new piece of information and you found out you were wrong and you're like oh no that's not evil so it was never actually evil until you created it you know so it's something you can say something is evil with all of your heart and then one new piece of information makes it not evil then it's just it shows that you're the one that's creating what is evil Another way to look at it, too, is like in our popular entertainment, anytime an evil character has a redemption arc where they go from being bad to being good and to like joining the hero, that happens constantly. It's one of our, uh, one of our top myths that you can see in our popular entertainment. You know, I think of um, you know, shows like The Walking Dead or like Dragon Ball or a bunch of these uh, books, you know, all kinds of stories that you see. Um, and you can look at that character beforehand, before their redemption, and you see them as this evil tyrant. And then when you start to understand, say, their backstory and their motivations, and you start to see exactly where they come from and that they were a product of their environment or, you know, whatever it may be, you start to understand them and see them from a new perspective. So the same thing as what you're saying, when you start to get new information, your perspective can change in an instant. So you can't really trust it necessarily. Yeah, I like the like the film analogy because like if you think back to, you know, decades ago in movies, the villains were always just evil. But it seems like now we've creeped into the era of like the anti-hero where you know, instead of just being an evil villain that the good guy fights, they give you the whole backstory of the villain. And then you can determine like, oh, well, he's not actually just pure evil. Like you said, you get a backstory, you get more information. Like the new Joker movie, for instance. Like, a, you know, he's committing pure evil acts, you know. But people love the character because, you know, he shoots people, whatever. But um, when you get the the information, it allows you to understand that it's not it's not as evil as it appears on the surface. You know, there's love in that person. There's pain, you know, suffering, all this stuff, which I find interesting now that how that never was in older movies and older films, you know, but now it seems like the anti-hero, they're going into these evil people and showing you their humanity. Yeah, it seems like culturally we're starting to catch up you know, like our, our cultural myths of the time are starting to catch up with the ancient myths because there are ancient myths you can look to that have the same types of themes. They weren't scared to explore all of this type of stuff. Yeah, so like with any new information, your, your mind could be changed. So that just proves that your mind is what makes it evil. So it's like no matter how hard it may seem, you can, you know, apply this to anyone. You know, I always go to Hitler because he's the clearest example of what we perceive as evil. But if you if you see the backstory and you see all this stuff, you can just kind of see the humanity at least. So it's not just pure evil. It's a human being. And it it is you. You know, you are that same thing. You're, you, as a human be, being, are capable of exactly that because that's what you are. All right, next question, 30. All right, what is beauty? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So in that way, whatever ignites that 
fire within you that warms your heart and makes you feel that love. That's beauty. And that can differ from person to person. But I do think that there is a directionality to beauty that maybe comes from uh, the evolutionary mind. You know, uh, it might come from our biology, but there are universal beauties that we all can share in in a way that's kind of undeniable. Like when you look up at the Milky Way galaxy, I don't care who you are, that's beautiful because it ignites something in you, something deep in you that you're yearning for. When you look at a mountain or a, an amazing summit, a beautiful canyon, usually these things that are inherently beautiful to all of us that we all share exist in nature. So I think there are two aspects to it. That aspect, the, the aspect of it where there are things that we all commonly feel that warmth in our, in our hearts and our souls from uh, that is like this universal beauty. But I, I do think that there's another aspect of beauty that is more individualized. Like I might think that something is beautiful and you might think it's not. Or same thing with like attraction. People might, I mean, obviously people have very different views of of like what and who they're attracted to. And that also changes during the times because if you look back to times in our history where we weren't as like luxuriously advantageous uh, in a wide way, like where everybody wasn't fed, everybody didn't have apartments and TVs and all kinds of good stuff, oh, really obese and overweight people were thought of as the most attractive because what came along with that was the idea that they had more stuff. They were fed. They were more well-off. Uh, they were a better partner to have because you were able to progress evolutionarily and you know within your survival mind uh, in that way. So I really do think that on a meta level, there are things we share, but it, it also does exist in the eye of the beholder as well. Um, I think beauty is, it's similar to love in that it's inherent to reality, that it is something that's fundamental to reality, that I think everything is beauty, everything is beauty, everything is beautiful by its nature. It just takes the, the, the ability to recognize it. So I think everything is actually beautiful. Um, for instance, like you you said obviously that like you look up at the stars and you say like, yeah, we all think it's beautiful, but there are people that don't give a shit about that and don't really think it's that beautiful. Um, the thing is it actually is. And you could say that for anything, you know, you could see an ugly person quote unquote and be like, they're ugly, but there's beauty there. There's always beauty, but you just have to see it. So I think it's, it's fundamental. It's foundational to reality, but, it, it, it takes the awareness to see it in everything. Um, so it is, in a sense, in the, in the eye of the beholder. But in actuality, it is everything. I think everything is actually beauty. But not everybody sees everything as such. And when you talk about the relative domain, like speaking relatively person to person, ego to ego, then it's only going to be things that are pleasing to the senses on the, on the lowest level of awareness and consciousness, you know, that woman's beautiful, that woman's not. But in actuality, 
it's just both perfection and beauty in its truest sense. So I think you're right when you say there's like kind of two different ways you could talk about that, but the absolute way and the relative way. So I think you pretty much uh, sum most of that up too. So It seems like complexity equals beauty. And simplicity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the way that the universe forms itself, like you said, can be seen as beautiful in every way, shape, and form just because life itself, you know, just the fact that all of this exists around us is just a, it's beautiful in nature. It's absolute beauty. And that's the, the thing about, and I've really got this from psychedelics because when a psychedelic, you can look at something that you see every day and it's just like a random object or just nothing, something you don't think about. And you can see it on, on a psychedelic or in certain states of consciousness. It's not going to happen every time you take a psychedelic with every object. Psychedelics can get you there, in my opinion. I think it, it can get you there in a in an easier way than, you know, without. But um you could look at just a random object and see meaning in it and the and the beauty behind the meaning. So like it, it's all in in the awareness that you have when you're perceiving something. And then you look around and you realize, wow, this is all beauty. And you can even look at something dark and dismal like death and rotting corpses as beautiful um in india when people die they take them to a city i think it's called benares benares or something like that and they like just burn the bodies and just in the open and it's a beautiful place it's where everybody wants to go when they're when they die because they think of it as you know death equals rebirth when you look at for instance close to my heart where mushrooms grow they grow on dead things so if you want to look at where some of the most magical um biological bodies grow from you can just look to anything that's decomposing uh you can look to decomposing bodies and how they they nurture the earth themselves or you know you go hunting and you kill an animal you eat that thing and it gives you the energy of life even the most dismal of things can be looked at as beautiful. Yeah, I th think it, this was in India as well, but a tradition, it might not have been, but I think there's a tradition of, you know, when a family member dies, or I, I don't remember the exact details of how it operates, but it's a tradition. Um, they take the dead body up to a mountain and let um, the vultures pick it apart and eat it, and it's like a beautiful thing. I mean, you think about somebody you love being picked apart by vultures, you're like, oh my God, that's the worst thing ever. But they see it as beautiful, and it is beautiful. They're, they're looking at, you know, your energy going into nature again. They're, they're seeing these animals get use from you, and you becoming one with it all. So you could see beauty in everything. And I think it just actually is beauty. Everything is inherently beautiful, but depending on your state of consciousness, your ego, you just won't see it that way. But you can see it that way. I'm with you. Number 31. Are people in this current generation less or more sensitive than people from past generations? I think to lump the entire past together is hard to say. But if we're, I'm just going to talk about basically the recent past. And I would say right now, yes. Um, I think more now than ever, people are, are 
especially in Western culture, okay? Because if we're talking about people altogether, then no. But in Western culture, if we're looking at just this culture, people in this generation are more sensitive than people in Western culture, you know, for many years, centuries even. Um, we just, we're too privileged. I mean, so smaller things make us, you know, upset, this type of thing. Um, you see a lot of uh, mental health in this uh, newest generation. You see a lot of oversensitivity to uh, people's environments. Like th this new thing I'm hearing a lot about is um, people are having problems with uh, sensory overload. Like people won't be able to go somewhere because it's too loud or something, you know, and it goes for every sense. Um, so I don't think that these things were as prominent in past generations. I think it's a product of just kind of babying our, uh, our children. It's like, what's the quote? Um, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men and weak men create hard times. So I think it, in Western culture right now, it appears that we are weak men creating hard times, in a sense, because we had, we had it so good in our culture that we became oversensitive. And uh, so that's why you see a little bit of cultural decay right now. Basically, yes, I think this generation of Westerners is more sensitive than those of the recent past. Yeah, it seems that with, uh, like the with more luxury and with easier access to our survival needs, like food and water and all the things that we take for granted nowadays, our our sensibilities are altered in a way where like a, a lot of very simple things can can affect us in ways uh, that were just non-existent back when we were still surviving amongst the animals in the in the woods and the forests and stuff. You know, you said the most the more recent past but if you go to like the far distant past you can see it probably even more prominently because we were like hunter gatherers we were surviving on the land and you would have to be a lot tougher of an of an individual in a lot of ways to to survive in that kind of environment in that kind of atmosphere i mean it breeds savagery it's where our tribalistic nature comes from and I don't really know either way if becoming more sensitive is a good or bad thing, because the more sensitive I think you become, the more open you are to existential thought, um, spirituality, and things like that. Um, and just look no further than, you know, people who are in our, our poorest cities in western culture you know go to like detroit chicago you know go go to some of these places where people are are suffering and struggling just to survive you know they don't have time to think existentially they don't have time to listen to pursuit of infinity and contemplate whether or not god is within them and god is everywhere because they're worried about where the next meal is going to come from they're worried about getting fired from their job a lot of us are so i feel like yes we are more sensitive as the times go by. And if you look at Steven Pinker's work, he writes a lot about um, the progress of humanity and our species as like continuously just rising and rising and rising with the times. 
Um, and the easier life gets for people, the easier it becomes to survive. Um, I think just overall, the more sensitive we get. Again, whether or not that's a good or bad thing still remains to be seen. But regardless, I think, yes, we are more sensitive now than we have been in the past. Yeah, and to add to that, I would say that sensitivity is a good thing. It's a great thing. But what you're seeing now, the negative aspects of it, is because it's not coupled with strength, not coupled with knowledge. You know, Sensitivity, like you said, it allows us to be sensitive to others, our surroundings, our spirituality, our relationships with God, all these different things. But if you're only sensitive, you can be stepped on, you know, and it, it, it's not a good thing for a culture to be sensitive without coupling it with strength and knowledge. So it is a good thing, sensitivity as a whole. But by itself, it's dangerous. Yeah, when sensitivity is not coupled with wisdom, you're getting in your own way. And that's what you see right now is a lot of people just getting in their own way, which is why the mental illness uh, epidemic is happening. Um, people are just like stepping on their own feet trying to move forward because, you know, they're, they're, they're triggered by too much. There's a difference because when you are so sensitive that you become triggered by things, that's the wrong type of sensitivity. It's based in like, um, like cognitive dissonance or something. It's not based in like a, a foundation of wisdom. Yeah. And that's exactly it. The whole triggered phenomenon. It's so over the top. And like you said, it's because when you have a sensitive society that is also probably the most egotistical of them all, then it allows you to be oversensitive at others instead of sensitive to others. And so sensitive in yourself and pleasing yourself and having things be exactly the way you need them rather than being sensitive to others and how they, how they feel and what, you know, there's plenty of good aspects to sensitivity. But it appears that right now in this generation, we're seeing mostly the negative aspects. And, you know, a lot of times that means it's going to swing in the other direction. So there's like a happy medium to be found. So you want, you know, both. You want strength and sensitivity. You know, it's masculinity and femininity right there. You want to combine the two. And, uh, and then that's where you want to be rather than swinging from direction to direction, like authoritarian to just, you know, you understand what I'm saying. I do. I do. Like you said, merging the masculine and the feminine. And in this culture, we're seeming to like distance the masculine and the feminine, and we're starting to label them as more defined edges instead of like parts of ourselves. You know, the divine feminine is in all of us, and the, um, you know, the warrior king is also in all of us, whether you're a female or a male. We, we, we have both of these aspects to us and to our subconscious, and they, they build us into the people that we are. And the more you separate the two and, you, and, and the more you, you identify as one or the other and you group yourself and you look at the other group as like bad or, you know, the demasculinization of men, you know, this whole like, uh, like male toxicity thing that's going around. There's two sides of that too, because yes, there is a lot of toxic masculinity that's happening. But on the flip side of that, it's becoming too much of a buzzword and a buzz concept and it's being applied to like all men and you need to have that masculine aspect of being a man or it's just not 
you're not compatible with biology. You're not compatible with living like a, you know, a, a fulfilled life. And you're not going to be the type of man that a woman is going to benefit from being with. I'll say I disagree with the analysis of toxic masculinity as a whole. I don't think it actually exists. I don't think it's a real thing. I think there are toxic people. It's not tos toxic masculinity. Masculinity is a fundamental, beautiful thing. If people aren't being what is toxic masculinity, but that, whatever that means, that's not masculinity at all. That's not what, what masculinity represents or what it is. So I disagree. I think, you, like you said, it's a buzzword. I don't agree with it at all. I think it's just a, a way to attack masculinity and, and try to push men and feminize them and kind of, you know, flip the whole board upside down because now you're, it seems as if the goal is to feminize men and, uh, you know, make women more masculine, which, you know, women should connect with their masculinity and men should connect with their femininity, but you shouldn't just flip the roles upside down and kind of demonize one. Because even for women, people don't talk about this, but femininity is kind of demonized in women now. To be just, you have to be a boss bitch or something like that. That is what is pushed on women, which is a masculine trait in a sense, to be assertive and bold and, you know, it's just masculine traits. So I disagree with the the whole the whole narrative of masculinity and femininity in our modern culture. Where were people before they were born? Well, I think you have to approach the question as to like what is a person? If you just define a person as their physical being, then they were nowhere because they weren't anything. But I tend to to think about things like in a reincarnation, like rebirth type of attitude. And there's a lot of really cool research that's being done on like two and three year old kids who are remembering past lives. And like they're talking to researchers and the researchers are going back and they're validating their stories. Um, and they're actually finding that the people that they're describing that they once were are accurate in name and job. Um, these kids know certain details about like their profession and stuff that you just wouldn't know as a two or three year old, just things that you haven't developed the capacity to understand yet. So I don't know, in my view, I feel like when we all die, we, we go somewhere else. Our consciousness goes somewhere, our soul goes somewhere. So wherever that is, seems to be where, where we are before we're born. Yeah, I don't know. The question's kind of weird. It says, where were people before they were born? I think it's just nowhere. I mean, if there's no person, then the person isn't there. So you're saying, like, the person as in, like, the, the biological... Like, yeah, human, I mean, right? where was the, the person, you, before you were born? You weren't, you weren't here yet. I don't know. I mean, you could say they all exist in time at, at some point. You're always in existence, but the moment, if you're not born, then you're just, you're no longer, you're not here. So by person, it's like the, the per, like the, the physical form of the person and like maybe their ego. That's what the person is. I think that's what it's asking, right? Where's the person? That's what it, that's what it seems like. But I think it really just depends on like what you think a person is or what do you, how are you interpreting the question? I interpret it as, 
like where was your body before you were born? Mm-hmm. If they're just talking about the mind, it's always existed. The mind has always existed. But where were people before they were born? They were existing in a different time, I guess. I mean, you always exist as a as a person. But if you're looking at just like linear time and the moment that you die the, and the, your body decomposes, the person is no longer there. Same before the the child is conceived, the body isn't there. So do you think that individuals have a soul or like an individualized spirit? Or do you feel like when we die, it's like our, our water droplet of consciousness just gets kind of put back into the, the ocean of consciousness and we become like one with that thing? I think that there's always going to be a unity. Um, but I also think that as the one, you experience everyone's life. So you are me, and I am you. And, like, for instance, if you think about a dead relative, they still exist in the time where I am them experiencing it. So, like, at some point, I was experiencing reality through your eyes. It's all part of the same me, the same I. So if you die and you um, have another life and you remember something it's because you have lived that life but you've also lived my life you know every like it's there's only one one consciousness that's experiencing all of us so i would say that you can experience all that stuff you can experience reincarnation and memories of a past life but it's still all part of the one number 33 what is true friendship i think uh true friendship is uh, based on love, trust, and loyalty. I think it has to be an aspect of unconditional love. I mean, you can't have unconditional love as it exists, but there has to be some sort of like selfless aspect of it because it's like seeing yourself in that other person, I think is is like a big part of friendship because you're feeling their empathy and you're you're caring enough about them to to look at them as if they are they are you. I mean, I don't know. I I when I think of true friendship, it's it's basically just someone you can trust. I mean, you should still treat everyone with kindness and treat them as a friend, but a true friend is someone who is loyal to you and you can trust them with your life or trust them in a circumstance to have your back. Whereas you can treat anyone as a friend, but it doesn't mean they're going to treat you as a friend. I think another aspect of it is like, have you ever had a friend where you don't talk to them for like a year or so or like a real long time? And then when you reconnect with them, it just kind of feels like no time has passed. I think that's an aspect of true friendship as well. There's certain people in my life that no matter how long I go without talking to them, I can reconnect with them. And it just, it feels like, like no time has passed. And we just kind of pick up where we left off. Yeah. Shared trauma often is like, can, create a true friendship that's why i think you see like you know soldiers in war they those are become brothers in arms that type of thing um anybody that you've been through something difficult with often becomes a it often develops into a true friendship um especially if you've been through something difficult and you each came out on the other side or um did something for you in a in a tough time. That's why I think it boils down to trust and loyalty. 
you know, also people who go through like spiritual experiences together, people who take psychedelics together. Um, they call it like the Sangha and Buddhism, like the people who help you along the path and you're helping them at the same time. It's like you're both headed toward the same thing, both have the same values, and you're just like selflessly, or as much as you can, selflessly like helping that person to go down that path, whatever path it is that they're choosing. Yeah, and that's why like uh churches are a great thing and really were a great thing. You don't I don't see it as much in in my community, but when the church was a central point of the community, you gather with people that become true friends because like you said, they have the same values, the same goal. They're going through spiritual experiences together. So I think you really hit the nail on the head too there with uh the same morals and values. I think that really breeds uh, a tight friendship but like i said you can treat anyone as a friend but it a true friend is about how they treat you back because you can give trust and loyalty and all this positivity to someone else and if they backstab you then that's not a true friendship all right we'll go to the next one is number 34 how does gravity work I don't really know how gravity works like on a level where I feel competent enough to to speak on it. I mean, I can say that to me gravity is sort of like a dimension similar to time and space and it seems like it's not fundamental, it's like a measured phenomenon that we kind of look at with our senses and with our mathematics and how we observe the world. Um but yeah, I mean, I think anybody who claims to know exactly how gravity works or what it is is probably wrong because really we don't know, right? Well, yeah, that's the thing. We don't know what gravity is. So how gravity works is hard to say when you don't know what it is. I would say gravity works by working. <laughs> but um, <laughs> the thing is, we consider something real as materialists once we measure it. Um, so gravity, to me, it just seems like a, a concept that isn't fundamental. See, the, when I think about gravity as like a lot of people would think it's an absolute and it's a, it's a force rather than something that's just happening right now. I think it's more of something that's just happening right now because in a different state of consciousness, like let's say in a lucid dream, the world I'm in is as real as this and gravity is working just fine. But with my mind, I can defy it. So in a lucid dream, I can float up out of my seat and fly away and just void gravity of all its power. So I think maybe gravity works, as all things do, through our minds. We are willing it to happen. It's just a part of this state of consciousness is being in this thing that we describe as gravity. But maybe gravity isn't an actual thing that it's just a feature of this current state. Because I, I, I always go to, like I said, dream states. It, it seems like a lot of things that, and it just depends on how much you value your dream state. You could just say, oh, it's a dream, that's nothing. I personally value my dreams, and I take them seriously and kind of treat them as reality. Because when I'm in them, it is reality. It feels as real as this. And when you can do something with your mind, like void gravity 
I mean, I, you can move things with your mind. You can float. You can do all this different stuff. It seems that gravity is just working as a property of this state of consciousness. So how it works, I would say, is the mind is willing it to work. I don't know. I think it's possible for us to, you know, in a reductionist type way, maybe boil everything down so small enough that we can maybe manipulate that type of gravity. But that would be just something that's happening in that state also. So how it works, I have no idea. But I know that in this state, it's just a property of you know, standard human consciousness. I don't know if it's actually a thing that exists or it's just a human conception. I like the way you put that. It's a feature of our reality. And I'm sure that somebody very scientifically minded can put together like a real comprehensive description of how gravity works in relation to the results that we see from it and the things that we can measure out of it. Same way that we don't know what quantum mechanics is, but we can describe sort of how it yields results that we can see and measure. But it's like one of those things. It's like, what is consciousness? You know, we, we don't really know what it is. We can see how it affects our reality, but we, I don't think we have any idea of what it actually is fundamentally. Like you said, like it, same with consciousness. It just is what is. And See, with, with gravity, it's funny because like, even with all these different scientists, it's, they, nobody can really agree or solidify what it is. Because for a while, they thought it was just like a wave. Then, you know, there's the graviton that it's actually a particle. But all these are just kind of human conceptions. It's not what the thing actually is. So the standard idea, I would say, gravity works by... Um, a force pulling you towards a large mass. That's what, what was believed. But it turns out that that's not really it. I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but I believe in UFOs, and it seems that UFOs can manipulate gravity. So it, I don't know. Something is happening in the state. I, I personally have a feeling that it all has to do with mind and consciousness, that you might be able to, like I do in my lucid dream, defy defy gravity with a certain state of consciousness. I don't know, maybe interdimensional beings can use their mind to define gravity because they can manipulate that dimension as they are from a higher dimension or something like that. Well, that would make sense because we seem to be able to manipulate lower dimensions that we have access to. And you think that if dimensionality is a thing that can be transcended or you know gone down into, then you'd have to be able to like kind of harness it and understand it if you can exist outside of it or or like above it or something it's it's a it's a weird thing to try to conceptualize yeah i don't think anybody could answer that question right now i agree um but fundamentally i think it's just an, an aspect of this state of consciousness that's how it works the same way everything works it's just our mind the mind capital m willing it to happen i like that i like that so we're going to end for this time. Um, at some point, again, we're going to be picking this up. I really do enjoy these episodes. Uh, give us a lot to talk about and a lot to discuss. And we'll start up on the next one, which will be, can achieving nothing make a person happy? Mm. I'm going to think on that one for a while. I, I like that question. That's a good one. <laughs>